Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, a podcast presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars with regards to game design and publishing. This episode has been recorded at BreakoutCon 2018, Toronto's premier tabletop gaming convention for board games and role-playing games. This recording has been made possible thanks to the organizers of BreakoutCon and the fine contributions of the panel speakers. Now let's get to the show. Episode 152, Creating Compelling Adventures. Recorded by Robin D. Laws, Rachel Kahn, Jax Brick, and Cindy Moore. It's moderated by Peter Van Heel. Hello, uh, my name is Peter Van Heel, and today's panel, or this hour's panel, is uh, Creating Compelling Adventures. Uh, I'm going to introduce uh, everybody uh, first. Uh, to my right, I have uh, Rachel Kahn. Uh, Rachel, yeah? Yeah. yeah okay. Uh, Rachel is an illustrator, author, and has been writing, uh, pardon me, you're producing art for the... Uh, the Yellow King. I am currently. Uh, also does. Uh, uh, you've got your pocket dungeons, and uh, you do teaching with role playing games. I recall from last year's panel. I did. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and then we have. Uh, oh, yay, yay, Rachel! Oh, yay. Yay. <laughs> We've got uh, Jacqueline uh, Jax Brick as uh, a freelancer. Uh, loves uh, Talisantia and uh, won an industry award for convention-ready design, and is currently working on Fading Suns, which was one of my favorite Heartbreaker games in the 90s that no one would ever play with me. I am such a huge fan of Heartbreakers, and I will talk a lot about Heartbreakers I've got a game for you in here. Yay, Jackson, Heartbreakers! <laughs> uh, then we have Robin Laws, uh, who is a prolific and award-winning game writer. Uh, you may know him from uh, Feng Shui, Hill Folk, uh, currently uh, in the final stages for release of the Yellow King role-playing game. Uh, it's also a novelist and uh, does a podcast with uh, Ken Height. So Fuck yeah, Robin! Yay, Robin! Yay. And on the other, we have Cindy Moore. Uh, Cindy Moore is a longtime gamer, and she's co-director of Queen City Conquest. Is that that's QCC, correct? Yes. Yes, in which I had the... Uh, yeah, oh yes, I actually went last year and had a great time, and oh, I'm going to go again this year. So Excellent. Fantastic, yeah. And also, it's it's very close to, Mighty, to the downtown Mighty Taco location, <laughs> which <laughs> was very so helpful. Yay, yeah. Cindy and Mighty Taco. Mighty Taco. I like tacos. Uh, <laughs> who does not? I'm uh, I'm Peter Van Heel. Uh, I am your moderator, and uh, I'll very briefly. Uh, I have not had anything published since 2005. Uh, last game I published was Isagi Jimbo. Previous that was Albedo. I've done work for the Ironclaw Line, some D&D writing, and just this year, uh, or well, last year, um, I was pulled in. I was pulled back in, man, for <laughs> one last job to write some stretch goal books for uh, the game Urban Jungle. And uh, one of them is done. The other one is a uh, serial pulp SF, and that's me. So we Yay, were going Peter. to. Yay, Yay. Woo. Um, I'm just going to open up to the panelists, and I'll be mostly quiet at this point. So I'll just start by asking. Uh, I guess you know uh, what what sort of uh, what makes an adventure compelling for you? Um, before we uh, oh, do that, can we get a sense of whether people want our a focus on writing published adventures or writing adventures for your home group? How many people are interested in, in published or adventures? Yeah, yeah, you can vote twice. How many people want to hear us uh, address published adventures? How many people want to uh, are looking for adventures for your home group? So uh, mostly B with a little bit of A. Cool. 
Right on. Excellent. I see you actually have a note there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we've pulled the room. So we've got a, uh, was it the majority of people are interested in? Uh, for sort of home group for their, stuff. For their home group, yeah. stuff. Okay. Um, well, well, maybe I can kick it off with a, a, a little thought, uh, which is that uh, as you're beginning to create an adventure uh, for your home group, you have an enormous advantage over those of us who write published adventures because uh, you can uh, improv and adjust in a way that uh, it's much harder for a published write, uh, adventure to prepare someone for. So uh, when you're writing a published adventure, the uh, subtext is always, but of course you will have to change this a lot in response to what the players actually do. Whereas if you're creating something yourself, you just do that and it's not an issue. Um, but as you're starting to think of your idea of what your adventure would be then, uh, I would encourage you to think about what choices does it offer the players? So that rather than a, what are the players going to do and how am I going to nudge them with a fork if they don't do that? <laughs> think about what are the possible things they could do and how could I react to that to make it interesting and fun after they make choices that let, allow them to feel that they are in control. Now. Uh, to a large extent, the illusion of control is often just as good as actual control, because what do they know? But uh, it's even better to think about a big choice that they can make, so that the you're looking to create something where the only off track is toward a dead end or something uninteresting or boring, rather than getting off track is not having the one single big scene that I've planned for them to get to. So the way I like referring to this um the either control or the illusion of control, setting up dominoes for the players to knock down. Unlike Robin, I can't write novels. I don't have the attention span, I get lost halfway through, and I'm like, crap, what am I gonna do with all these characters? Something I'm really good at, though, is setting up the dominoes in the beginning and then just watching other people knock them down. So it's not so much what sort of storyline am I going for, it's, okay, so what pillars can I put in place to make this adventure go somewhere? Um. I like to focus on the players themselves. If I have a home game, that's easy. I know these people. I know their the characters that they want to play. But mostly the players, whether they like uh, combat or whether they like role playing. Um, if they like the the role playing, I definitely have to flesh out NPCs for them or have a list of names so when they go talk to the farmer outside of town rather than you know want to go into a tavern at least have a name ready maybe with a little personality along the way to help you along with the role playing but i've also written a lot of published adventures where i've been given a storyline at that point you're limited to what you're able to accomplish. For instance, I write for uh, Adventures League for D&D. When I get a job, I'm given a storyline, a magic item to give out, how long it has to be, how much experience points I have to give out. So it's very limiting in how I can do something, especially the experience point part where I need to have battles in order to get the majority of the experience points because in Adventures League they don't give out a lot of XP 
for role playing or accomplishing goals and things like that. I definitely, when I'm thinking about pushing my players to do something, I will think of a scenario from the, like maybe the first two thirds of it. I'll be like, okay, so they're going to be here and they're going to have these problems or they're going to have these things that they want. And I don't tend to let myself get to the end until I've either, if I'm doing it to write it for myself, until I've, I've really hammered out sort of the possibility space and the breadth of what could be happening at the end or until my players are in that last session and I'm like, okay, what do they want for their resolution? Like, so I've set up a thousand problems first and then let them uh, start to decide what is important to them in that scenario and how they respond to the problems because I've run, like, I, I run things for groups at cons or at home and you end up with one group where they're going to befriend every monster in this dungeon. You end up with another group where they're going to make even the chickens attack them. So <laughs> um, I try and try and keep that flexibility open where it's like, okay, however you've gone through this, whether you're going to go and club something just because it looked at you or whether you're going to be coming out singing and holding hands, um, I want there to be something at the end that's going to be a challenge and be interesting. Uh, that doesn't rely entirely upon you checking these this this linear list of boxes. I like that you you used coming out singing as an alternative to coming out swinging. That's Fair really, point. That was really good. Oh I gosh. Like that. <laughs> um, so something I want to mention. Um, has anybody in here read the D and D book Heroes of Horror? It's terrible. But there's an important thing about Heroes of Horror that. I, as a baby GM, picked up a lot of information from it because Heroes of Horror is a great 101 in how to build mood. It, it, because Heroes of Horror was written for D&D GMs who may have not engaged with horror before or have not engaged with sort of running games that are meant to evoke uh, feelings other than, hey, let's kill this monster. Um, and it's, it's great because it's a step-by-step -step primer on, okay, if you want to build a mood of dread, you should include this thing at this time, and maybe include this thing, and, you know, maybe take the character's, maybe take a character's victory away, or maybe if they've decided they're afraid of this one monster, put that in as the boss monster. It's a lot of listening to your players, figuring out what your players want, and even if your players don't have control over the situation, making sure that you take away their control in a way that is enjoyable and impactful for them, if that makes sense. Whatever your rule system is, it provides you a backstop that uh, defines the sorts of choices that you will typically present to uh, the player characters in whatever adventure that you're writing. So uh, in uh, F20 games like D&D, uh, the assumption is that you are going to solve problems by getting into fights. You have the option of, of singing uh, them to sleep, but... Coming uh, out singing. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, and actually in, in a way, you know, a D&D &D adventure is like a musical in that uh, in a musical you uh, advance the story by having a musical number, and in a D&D adventure you advance the story by having a fight. I really like that. The players are going to feel that they are uh, making choices uh, when they get into the fight. They have all sorts of, you know, when do I use my fireball? Do I hit that guy? Do I hit that guy? But if you, uh, to level that up a bit, the outcome of the fight should have some sort of effect on, on yep. the story, unless you're just running a straight up dungeon delve where they're just picking rooms to, to ransack. 
I mean, uh, even then, you could still have a, uh, it could have an impact on the story, like if the dungeon has a boss or a mini-boss, and then its minions, who are not in the dungeon at the time, are going to be super pissed. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so if you can find ways to do that and feel that there's a consequence to that, that's the feeling of choice. Or, for example, Gumshoe, uh, the investigative uh, system that I created and that I write a lot of adventures for, it has a structure that shows you how to create uh, a scenario. And built into that is the typical choices that you make when you're running an investigative scenario, specifically you know, what order you investigate all the leads and put the story together. And so uh, whatever game you have is going to help you uh, make interesting choices. So look again at what the core activity is of the game that you're working on and let it meet you halfway. Uh, because uh, unless it is a, basically any modern game, it's going to answer for you the question, uh, what sorts of choices do I put in front of my players? So uh, fall back on whatever structure you're presented with because it's been put there to work. The reason I say, uh, to sort of build off your point, the reason I say Heroes of Horror is not a great book is because in a lot of ways it asks you to just totally throw out the structure of D&D in favor of running a horror game. And if it's a D&D book, it should not be telling you, hey, you're you're playing D&D with your players, but you're actually tricking them into playing something much more. Mm -hmm. Don't don't trick your players into something they don't want to do. Like, I hear this a lot at panels all the time. Oh, how do I make my players play this game? <laughs> don't make your players do anything. Players are cranky. They don't like being led around by the nose. There, there is one exception to that, though, oh. uh, which is if you're writing a con scenario and it is already established to people what they're signing up for. Oh, yeah. But start the action before they can make the choice to reject the premise. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, Continuous, uh, enthusiastic oh. consent. Yes. Uh, but within that, for example, if they're doing a, a Call of Cthulhu scenario, and the idea is, well, they get on a plane and go to the jungle where the mystery is, and the right. plane, of course, the plane has to crash on the way. That's oh, yeah. just a Cthulhu yeah. 101. Uh, don't start with them deciding whether to get on the plane, yeah. because then they might not. And then they will be disappointed by their own exercise of choice. Um, and so start with, you're on the plane and it's going down. Because that is already part of the implicit consent that they've yeah. given by uh, signing up for Cthulhu plane of uh, <laughs> jungle death. <laughs> I, I think it's a Ray Bradbury quote. Uh, or no, I think it's a Vonnegut quote, sorry. Uh, where he says, start the story as close to the end as you can. And I think that's really applicable for con scenarios. <laughs> um, but even just for your group, like if it's not important to to share the action at the table, then sit down and have a couple of leading questions. Hey, you're all about to land on this island where you're going to rescue your friends. Um, you're already in the boat. So how did you get that boat? Uh, why are you going to get your friends? Are you like how do you feel about them? Yes. Yeah. Not not. Are you going to do something interesting? Yeah. But why are you doing this yeah, interesting? Yeah. Like, how did it? How did it get to the point where now it's about to be awesome? And like, do those leading yeah. questions to limit the possibility space of the answers, so that the players still have that choice, without uh, being invited to fully subvert the premise of what they're about to do. Um, if you have play so player buy-in is sort of a tricky thing. Like, there have been hundreds of hours of panels on player buy-in. And it literally just boils down to, meh, whatever they're feeling that day. If they're not feeling it, you're not going to have the adventure you want to have. And there's no real good way to sort of make them feel it. 
because you can't make people feel things. It's it's weird. It, I wish I had a better answer for you than that, but it's if your players aren't interested in the adventure that you're running, it will be obvious, and you can't force them to be interested in it. So when your players aren't interested, maybe look for a plan B. Or, or have them ready. Yeah. Yes, prep them. I Working with kids, I did a museum uh, camp where I worked with uh, three other adults to GM Dungeon World games set in the world of this ancient Persian poem, the Shanama, at the Aga Khan Museum. And it, so good. it was such a wonderful introduction to it for me to get that immersed in it and then be like, now take these 20 kids into the Shanama. And so we had very specific goals. We were like, the adventure that each of these four groups is going on is going to take them through the, the, these five regions that uh, Rostam goes through on his trials because we want them to be a step behind Rostam because we're teaching that story and this is how we're going to make it real. Um, if you sit a bunch of nine-year-olds down and you say, I have, you have to, as in this game, your character has to walk in this direction for five sessions. Like, they're not going to do it. <laughs> yeah. um, so we sat down and we prepped them. And we every day we spent time before gaming being like, hey, so this is, you know, this is where Rostam's at. And is anybody's group in the desert yet? Is it cool? Oh, who isn't in the desert yet? You're going to want to get there. <laughs> um, and just framing it to be like, this is going to be great, I promise. Yeah. And here's some of the fiction, uh, whether it's in your email to your group before game or it's they sit at the table and you're like, I made you all. Uh, there's like some art of the places you're going to go or uh, here's like some of the neat items that uh, that you pick up on your way to do this thing. You're just bribe them yeah. <laughs> with cool things that get them pumped. Mm-hmm. To, them, uh, I'm sorry. Oh, no, you um, also uh, giving them a purpose in the beginning or a goal uh, helps a lot if they have a real good friend for instance that is missing and they need to go give them emotional investment in what you're writing emotion does a lot for an adventure it brings the players in it keeps them motivated and it gives them goals and personal stakes are really great for those yeah. because we're already saving the world in Dungeons and Dragons, right? Mm-hmm. Pretty much. Yeah. So that's that's baseline. I was going to uh, wondering about the idea of uh, emergent plots kind of arising from from player choice. Do you think it's uh, uh, I maybe not not to ask is like, how is important how important is that to you when you're writing emergent uh, plots? Emergent, sort of having like the the, the player yeah. the player just directing the story. Like how attached are you to you, the, the dom? You mentioned the dominoes, mm. or your set pieces or plot points, and how they get there. You know, but do you ever is it how is it a good idea just to like give that up and let the players just so spark the ideas in your own head? So there's there's this running joke that John Adamus um, started with Mark Richardson, which is whenever Mark Richardson was in the room, he would call him award-winning cartographer and power bottom Mark Richardson. <laughs> And so this weekend I started introducing people as celebrated game designer and power bottom X. And then I wound up having this very deep conversation with Ryan Macklin about how there are two prominent GM styles, power, bot- uh, power bottoming and service topping. And service topping is when you as the G- GM are directing the game and you know giving the players what you know they want but what they don't think they want sort of like giving them direction, giving them motivation, and running the game. But when you're 
power bottoming, it's the opposite. It's when the players are directing their own plot. Mm. And, you know, people switch back and forth, and that's fine. But I think it is important for, if the players are really invested in something, it's not that difficult to be like, oh, well, you guys are really angry at this vampire lord when we're trying to go after this lich. Actually, they're working together. <laughs> and they've been working together this whole time, and you guys totally figured that out. That's awesome. <laughs> I had no idea they were working together, but great. Discovering, I, I think discovering emergent plots is actually one of the best things you can do in a game because it makes your game richer, it makes your players more invested, and it just makes it more fun for everybody. That sort of goes to one of the issues of published adventures, which is that um, something that it has that magical feeling of something emergent happening mm -hmm. during play is something that you can kind of lay the groundwork for in a published adventure. But the dichotomy is that the more fun and compelling an adventure is to read, the harder it is to run. And the more something is a series of ideas and tools for you to pick up with and manipulate and play to allow emergent things to happening, the uh, more uh, confusing and less fun it is to read. And uh, there, is, there are a lot of people who just read adventures or will judge how well an adventure is or, or how much they want to run something or how, much, or how good it is if it seems very compelling and, and cogent and uh, structured on the page. And those are often very difficult uh, to replicate. And, as, uh, and if you're writing published adventures, you want things to be readable and fun and not sort of uh, disappointing. And it is a difficult uh, balance to strike. And so what I've uh, tried to do in some of my published adventures, at least, is to break that down more into here's you know, deliberately a set of component parts where uh, it's not even established who you're working for. There's three possible people you could be working for in this political situation, and it's going to go very differently. And here's, at the end, here's a list of, here's six possible climaxes that you could have, all radically different from one another, depending on what decisions you made at the very uh, beginning. And that's uh, specifically in a, a recent uh, thing I did for uh, the Hero Quest game set in Glorantha, uh, which is available from uh, Chaosium on their site. It's called The Mother of Monsters. Okay. And uh, so it's deliberately set up to sort of break the here's a narrative style of adventure writing and, and, and give you a whole bunch of different choices. But as a result, it's a little harder to get uh, a grip on. But you can definitely, while writing, create something that by definition the players know would have been radically different if they decided with the guy who runs the city instead of with the rebellious dock workers, and different still if he'd gone with the evil immortal uh, sorcerers. Yeah. Now going to home games, the thing that I like to do when you're still uh, starting up, you know that you're going to, who your players are going to be, I like to get background information about their players, such as, you know, who are they emotionally invested in, what sort of events in their past has shaped who they are. And I play on those to help me create the world. And in creating the world with them in mind, I know where the plot that I have in mind can intersect with what is important to them. And that brings about emerging plot, where you bring in something that is familiar to them and they go 
on how they tell me how they want to go about it. That's why I like to have the names of NPCs that can become very important in the whole campaign you are running and let them tell me who these people are, what they did in their own past, and it goes back to bringing them emotionally invested in what you're writing. I, uh, as a home GM and as someone who herds cats uh, <laughs> when I'm gaming with kids, I like to think of an adventure as a sort of a, a limited scope landscape, like a video game level you're dropping them in. But it's not a linear video game level, it's just sort of a region. So that there's a lot of room for emergent play based on how they interact with what I've given them. Um, but they've agreed to be dropped into this particular controlled space. Um, and they're going to show me what they can do to it. And because it's tabletop games, if they decide to befriend the chickens and raid the dungeon together and so forth, that's fine. Um, I put in the chickens, I put in the dungeon, and I knew I had a bard. So <laughs> life happens. But it, I, I enjoy that idea of sort of like, this is a box. Anything that happens in the box is still technically part of the thing I planned because I planned the box. Um, but I'm not emotionally invested in you doing one, two, three, four, and five. If you want to go here and then there and over there and then do this, that's fine. Um, and so I'm, I'm still still learning how I want to be doing that, but I like the idea of, of creating kind of a possibility space where emergence is possible and interesting and I will be as surprised as the players at some point. It's useful to make emer uh, something emergent, something player-driven, be your first thing you want to have happen and sort of put in the tools that allow that to happen. But to know that with uh, uh, on some nights with some groups, uh, they may not know where to go. Um, and Rachel will have no idea what I'm talking about here, but sometimes you'll have a group where you have strong personalities <laughs> who enjoy having things not happen. thousand-yard stare. Yes. <laughs> and, and so uh, you have to have, as a GMA, plan B of if everybody's having an indecisive night uh, or nobody's thought of what they want to do. You or have if a everybody's invested in avoiding plot. <laughs> if, if everybody's invested in avoiding plot, you have your plan B for the things that are going to happen to them if they don't bring a ball to, you know, that, that you have a ball in, uh, under the table. If nobody brings a ball and throws it, you're going to bring a ball and throw it and have that happen. But rather than, this is the story I'm going to tell, it's like, this is a story I'm going to be forced to tell <laughs> if they can't decide which story they want to uh, go and find. Yeah, I think it's very important to have the world happening around them even if they don't get directly involved. Uh, the circumstances of what they don't do should be very important and relevant and make them think about their choices. And when they have to choose between two very hard things, it brings in the motion again. By the way, it is totally okay to ask your players, hey, what kind of things do you want to do? Like just flat out, mm -hmm. communication between GMs and players is ideal. And a lot of people don't realize this. It's like, oh, well, I need to predict what my players are going to want to do. And then I need to create a whole plot built, uh, built around it. And I need to you know, spend hours prepping for this game. And you don't, you're not, you're not writing a Bioware video game. You don't yeah. have to put all of the 
you know, dialogue choices in place before you run the game because they might not choose one of the five dialogue choices you thought they were going to choose. It's okay to just do things in the moment. It doesn't make you a bad GM. And it doesn't make you a bad GM to, if emergent play starts happening and you freeze, go, hey, I need five minutes to think about this. And they're giving you a ton of hints on their character sheet. Yeah. Right? If they've maxed out their skill in uh, explosives, they want to blow something up. <laughs> um, and so giving them the opportunity to blow something up, even if it's the clearest, most obvious thing to do is to blow the thing up. Well, you're actually paying off a choice that they made six weeks ago when they designed that character. Yep. So to them, it will feel that they are making the choice to blow this thing up, even though you've conveniently contrived the situation where the plot turns on them blowing something up. Because guess what? That's They gave you an order. Uh, you know, They ticked that off in the menu, so give them something to blow up. There's always consequences. Yep. The other thing that I find a really helpful concept comes from video games uh, and uh, when you're looking at like an open world game or even like a Bioware game where it's still fairly linear um, with these little moments of player choice, uh, if you're in a room in like a, in like like Mass Effect and it's that's the game I was thinking of fully, so. <laughs> <laughs> you're in a room in Mass Effect and there's piles of boxes and there's a bunch of floors and you, there's possibly enemies and you don't know where to go. The way that the video game developers tell you where to go is they literally put a light on it. Yep. It's literally there. If you're playing video games, watch for those lights. It's been in there since Final Fantasy VII, at least, because that's what I'm playing right now. And you know where to go because it's the lit path. The exit door glows, right? And so in your game, if the players are freezing or if they are you know, getting really emergent and just sort of like, woo, um, you don't have to drag them somewhere. You can just be like, that's a really interesting trap door in the floor. It's got <laughs> sigils on it. There's a sound coming from underneath. You don't have to do anything, but it's there. I, just to interject, you know, as a moderator, I know that I literal lights I've used often, especially in convention games. Oh yeah. That people get confused. There's always like the lights in the woods or something. You totally. know, just put them in there. You can explain it away later. Yeah. <laughs> they always follow us. That, that works until your players decide that everything you do is sinister. Yep. And True. it's like, oh, Robin has described putting a lot of description into this gate. What we can't possibly go, go through there. <laughs> That's not our fault. <laughs> it's because we will die. <laughs> we go through that gate. When the adventurers go through a dungeon with a ten-foot pole, listen at every door and yeah. check for traps. Yeah. But as a, I think a very, but the people who are doing that are probably engaged in a very different way. Mm -hmm. I think yeah. that's like a more of a war gamey thing. And they're like super pumped when that trap goes off and yeah. suddenly something happens and that ten-foot pole is super useful. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like the explosive skill. If you've got yeah. someone who wants to find the trap. Yeah. And be right. Mm -hmm. Side side note that is tangentially related. How many of the people at this table sort of hate the your DM wants to make you cry subculture? Because I am not a huge fan. No? Okay. I don't like the idea that you're hurting the players. Yeah. But I don't I, want a bunch of, bunch of damn feelings at my table. <laughs> <laughs> this is Toronto, man. Not, not what I meant. Do you, mean, do you mean like a, a sort of the old school, ha ha ha, I'm your adversary? Yeah, yeah. more no, like I, that. I, I mean, okay, I was, I have, uh, full disclosure, I was like a, a, one of Canada's only certified hack master game masters oh, back in the I'm year sorry. But <laughs> even I didn't do that, so, but I knew yeah. that was like fun for other people. Yeah. I'll, I'll be quiet again. <laughs> You're fine. I think you can get your players on your side. Like if you, if you create a game where the players don't think it's fun to get in trouble, yeah. then you've maybe gone a little too far. But if you created a game where you're like, whatever is under that trapdoor 
is it might kill you, but also it's going to be awesome. Oh yeah, <laughs> right. But you got to know your players and know where their line is on that and how much they're going to invest risk, how cautious they are. Uh, and if they're really cautious, you can just TPK them and rip that Band-Aid off. Right <laughs> if you look at the, there have been studies done in the science of choice and why people choose, and you can employ some of those ideas in adventure design. For example, uh, one of the types of choices that people find very, very difficult to make is a choice between two bad options and deciding which is worse. And so if you have people freezing up, give them a bunch of obvious choices for a while. So it's like, do you go to, uh, in, instead of, do you wanna uh, you know, fight the horrible ghosts or do you wanna fight the horrible demons? It's like, do you wanna fight the horrible ghosts or do you wanna go and, uh, and talk to some talking chickens? And let the, oh, well, I, I think we'd rather go talk to the talking chickens. And when they go do that, the chickens say, hey, could you take care of these ghosts for us? We have a lot of really great eggs for you, and eggs are rare in this setting. So. Also, they're gold. Yeah. Also, yeah. <laughs> but really, e eggs, man. I'm uh, interested if we want to uh, kind of flip the table a bit and ask uh, the panelists what uh, engages them and compels them as, as players. I like exploding things. <laughs> Good answer. It depends on which character I'm playing. Um, I like to play different different kind of characters, but I do tend towards chaotic ones. <laughs> um, and uh, so uh, things that give me choices to be crazy uh, and make poor choices, because when I'm chaotic, I tend to like to make poor, poor choices. And from that, I feel I'm able to get a feel of the table. And if they like me to make poor choices, good. If they don't, I might change myself a little bit. But again, I, I like chaotic um, characters, but, but I also like story. Story that compels me, again, gives me most emotional investment. That's that's my big thing as a player. I like to feel that what I do can have really bad consequences or really good and have the emotion of trying to figure out which is better for me at that time. Um, I try to, to bring a ball to the table. I try to be the, the player that I would want to jam for and so have, when I'm given a pre-gen, because I, I don't play that often, so it's usually a pre-gen character, I try to go, okay, how do I create a story potential with the other players? Mm -hmm. So how do I put something out there that other people can interact with? So if I'm given a goblin to play in a D20 thing with a group of other players, it's like, I'll try to be the weirdo goblin who's trying to get them all on the side of, and make me the goblin king. Or you know, if uh, we played Fall of Delta Green with the uh, Pelgrim folks, and so I was given the the crazy guy character. So it's like, well, I'm going to really be the crazy guy <laughs> character and give the uh, the lieutenant character a chance to sort of come back at me hard. And he was British, so I just wound up killing him. But that's good. Yeah. Um, I like being able to hand plot to other characters, to be able to let them influence my decisions. Um, I'm sort of, I guess I'm sort of with Robin on this. I really like being the sort of player I'd want to GM for. Um, I like, you know, saying something that might have been a throwaway, throwaway line, and then later my GM is like, actually, when you said this, 
this person heard it and felt this way about it, and now you've just changed the politics of an entire city. <laughs> and that's terrible. What are you going to do about that? Like Stuff like that. So really sort of having my actions have consequences in the world is it's sort of an almost a god, sort of like a gimme thing, but a lot of GMs don't do that because a lot of people forget that adventures and campaigns are iterative. So what you do in one iteration is going to affect what you do in the next iteration. So when a GM acknowledges, hey, this this episode is connected to this episode, it's awesome. To give a, a serious answer, I like a good MacGuffin. Hand me the big red button and I will find a reason for my character to press it. <laughs> I will go through the dumb door that looks bad. I will open the shiny trap door that's probably cursed. It's going to be more fun for me to do that than to watch the rest of the group be like, oh, but should we really? Yeah. Yes. Um, so I, I like being that character. I like being essentially the heavy and just going ahead and doing the dumb thing um, because it's really fun for me. But I also really like mysteries and I like investigation. I don't want to carry all the facts in my head. I want to be the person that uh, then gets handed a little piece of plot and goes and breaks down a door or what have you. Um, and all of that goes for emotionally as well. Will emotionally break things. Mm-hmm. It's a, uh, a piece of, of a bad business advice that uh, goes for It's not bad business advice, but the, the concept of move fast and break things, I think, actually applies really well for role-playing games, because yep. you're there to do things and make things happen. So. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to... Uh, did anyone have any comments on that? Sure. I'm going to ask, uh, I guess, one more, and uh, and then I think we'll open it up. Uh, cause we about, uh, 20 minutes. Yeah, 20 minutes left, so I'm going to ask one more question, and then we'll open up the floor for everyone else's questions and some open discussion. Um, can you think of a, uh, if you can't, that's fine as well, uh, a good example of a, a compelling published adventure and, and what made it that way? That might require a minute of thought. I actually have one. So the God Machine Chronicle mm-hmm. for uh, Chronicles of Darkness, which is essentially New World of Darkness, second edition. Um, the adventures that they put out were all one page, and they were all, here's the general gist of the adventure, here's what the players should be doing, but it wasn't point A, point B, point C. It's here how you can, here's how you can get to this conclusion with these skills, here's how your players might have these skills to you know, figure out the big thing that causes the god machine to do something else. And it was suggestions like, hey, if you want to play the adventure where people suddenly start coming back from the dead, and you know you have to figure out why, you might want your players to be coroners or, you know, police or EMTs, people who would have reasons to interact with all of these dead bodies that are suddenly living people again. And so it provides means, it provides motive, it provides ways to get characters emotionally invested, and it doesn't overwrite the adventure, which is awesome. Also, they sort of linked them together in, like, mini campaigns, and that was really cool, too. Anyone else? So I'm going to say this as a player and not as someone who read or GM the adventure, but I really love the Corbett House, the Call of Cthulhu, pretty classic. Mm. I just want to go into a spooky place where there's some punching in an answer at the bottom. <laughs> um, and I think it does that really well. It's scary. It sets the mood. A bunch of really strange and dangerous stuff happens. You can totally die or you can solve a mystery and do something really cool. And the sense that both of those are possibilities, like right from the first thing that goes wrong, is pretty strong there. Um, but I can't testify to how it's written because I played it and I wasn't allowed to read it beforehand. <laughs> Spoilers. 
I think that, uh, that one of the most compelling uh, games that I've played was also a Call of Cthulhu game. And I can't remember the exact name, and I had trouble finding it, but it was set in the Hundred Acre Woods. <laughs> and it had, you were one of the characters of Winnie the Pooh, but it, of course, with Call of Cthulhu, it took a dark turn. No. <laughs> and what, what it was is it took, why I liked it is it took my perspective of Winnie the Pooh and Eeyore and Piglet and totally turned around their motivation. Their motivation ended up being that they wanted to always be alive, so that means that they had to do something that kept Christopher Robin, who created them in his mind, invested in them. And as a child grows up, their, you know, their priorities change and maybe stuffed animals are not it. So it was very, it was emotional. And as I've said before, that is important to me. It, 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 it was emotional because it was a total departure of what I saw as the norm. I really should memorize the name of this uh, adventure, but there is, uh, once again, early Call of Cthulhu adventure. It could be called Curse of the Montressors. I think that's slightly wrong, though. Uh, and it's a uh, vampire uh, in a uh, town in New Mexico with uh, uh, overtones of Poe. Uh, and it is uh, the one that I remember turning on the light for me way back when. Of, oh, this is a storytelling medium, look. And, <laughs> and what it does is it basically sets up a situation. Here's a town. There's implicitly a bunch of different ways to investigate and find out uh, that there's a, a vampire at work. Here's what the vampire will do. Uh, here's uh, places that you can explore to learn things. So it's sort of a, a, a great prototypical horror mystery. Okay. Um, so yeah, I'd like to open up the uh, floor to any questions anybody has. Yeah. Um, how important do you feel, I've been trying to figure out how to phrase this question, how important do you feel the ending or the climax of the adventure is uh, to having it have been a compelling adventure? Um, you know, the, the you know, because you, you, you get that emergent play from players at the beginning, but having it still when everything is said and done feel like you just had a, you know, you played through a complete story, you know. I always try to have a, a big finish in mind as, as here's one possible big finish, or as in the example of the adventure I was referring to earlier, it was that one goes, here's eight possible big finishes. Um, but uh, that's your, again, that's your backup plan. You've got one in pocket. Uh, and then, but if they start to move toward another big finish, uh, I would want to create the adventure in a way that suggests that that is also possible. With the, there is one exception though, which is the investigative uh, game, which already has an implicit finish, which is you solve the mystery, you figure out what's going on, and then often there's a consequence of that. And players who are playing a mystery are already accepting of the fact that this is going to be less sandboxy and more structured than, uh, you know, we're going to take over this desert and uh, find all the devices under the ground and, you know, some sort of post-apocalyptic world-building game is different than a mystery. Yeah. 
I mean, it, I think it is, I, I'm just going to agree with Robin here, it is important to have the big finish. Your players will always hand you the tools to get what you need, to get what they need out of the big finish and help you help them. I think that that plays into what was said before and getting them emotionally, I keep saying that, don't I? It's Get, okay. Getting them emotionally invested and knowing what they want for the end. Uh, for instance, all of their resolution of all of the conflicts, conflicts that they've come up with, whether they're physical conflicts or whether they're hist historical conflicts in their own life or emotional conflicts, bringing them to an end and feeling like the character, so the character and the player feel like they can move on because they have been able to get closure, get closure yeah. to their, to their uh, circumstances is is always important and I think that it is important to have a big end in that respect. And I, I think what, what Jack said about them, they're going to hand you the tools, they'll let you know what they want. Like I've run the same dungeon uh, and I've had three different results. I've had the players who want the info dump at the end. They want to know what the heck was going on. That's what they want. That's their big finish. They don't need a fight. They don't need any sort of emotional thing. They just want some goddamn answers. <laughs> um, and then the, at the same dungeon, I had players who were like, oh, that that was all really interesting and cool, but we're going to just burn this whole thing down now. And that was what they wanted to do, and I'm not going to block them. And then the third one, I had players who had created such important interplayer relationships and relationships with NPCs that they wanted time to focus on those instead of sort of the various props I'd put in the room for them to have a big finish with. And so there was no point in interrupting their emotional role-playing with fire or an info dump at that point. And it's not that they're going to walk away knowing what they were missing, right? Like, they're not like, oh, geez, but if we had only gone around that one bend, we could have had a 20-minute conversation, right, <laughs> with, a, with, like, an info dump, or I could have lit that tree on fire. They weren't thinking about that. They were worried about the emotional consequences that they had spent so much time setting up. Uh, one of the gumshoe games I designed, Meet in City Blues, is a superhero police procedural, and we found that literally playtesters were 50-50 on whether they wanted a big superhero fight at the end, and that gave them the sense of accomplishment and closure. And we avoided the big superhero fight at the end, and we just successfully arrested them without a fight and figured out what the mystery was. So yes, you should have a big finish, but what that is in the minds of your players may differ from group to group or even night to night. So to, to, to sort of give you a more concrete example, to, well, you have a concrete example, but I'm going to give another one. Uh, so to sort of go back to the this vampire lord and the lich lord we set up earlier, or I said it earlier. Whatever. We can have, we can, everybody. Is one of them a chicken? We're on brand. Yeah, we're yeah. on. We'll take, okay. we'll take it all on. Yeah. Okay, so it's it's like a lich lord who's like taking taxes of chickens. Bingo. Saying, Perfect. Here we go. Yeah, tied so, it all in. So maybe the players <coughs> want to fight both of them, or maybe somewhere in the story there was like these guys used to be bros, and like maybe their friendship is the only thing that can you know, stop them from being predators and destroying the land, and maybe the players have decided, hey, if we got them to be friends, then everything would be fine. Again, what matters most is closure. It doesn't have to be a big set-piece finish. It doesn't have to end with everybody crying. It doesn't have to end with everybody 
on fire. On fire or listening to an info dump. It just has to be what the players want the end to be. Okay. It can be on fire crying while they listen to the info dump. It's sure on all three. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think we have time for one more question. Um, yeah, Chris. I found one of the best things about role-playing sessions are when you get those really great like comedic moments that just sort of spontaneously happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I'm interested in is how are like what are some of the better techniques for setting like comedy and comedic events to happen in uh, role-playing games? Anybody have any ideas? So I write horror a lot, and this doesn't sound like it's comedy, but horror and comedy are this close and it's so so easy to step over that line into comedy and horror and it's all about perspective it's all about which part of it you're looking at and i wish i had a more concrete answer for you but it's it's what makes what makes something funny to one person is going to be something that's horrible and absurd to someone else so it really depends on knowing your group's tastes at that point and knowing what they're going to find funny and what they're going to go actually so and playing on her comedy and horror go together. A good example, not role playing, but is the uh, B horror film, uh, horror films of yep. 70s and 80s, where you know that something is going to happen and it's going to be terrible, and you're yelling at the screen, "Don't go in the basement!" But they go in the basement, and of course you laugh. Um, so it's it's like that, but I, I have a lot of crazy people in my games, and there are there's always comedic. I could come out with a very serious thing, and and they would take it to the funny. So I don't have a lot of experience in trying to set them up, but after a while, you know what will set them up. And so you try to bring those elements in. Like if, if it's a, a comedic relationship between the players themselves, come up with, for instance, if, if one has a pixie that slammed into a tree because the other was told to do it. And I'm just, I'm just picking time in my game. And you give you give the person who makes fun of that pixie that slammed into a tree because they did every opportunity to bring it up. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's that's a that's a good comedic. Yeah. I'm feeling a little picked on over there. <laughs> <laughs> comedy arises from character, and so the, the funniest moments in in our games come from moments of character recognition where, oh, I know what your this character is going to do next, or, oh, I see this crazy thing is happening that puts a character in a bind. And the, uh, the drama system games we play are the ones that are the richest in comic opportunity because those give the most opportunity. Drama system is only about character interaction, um, basically. And so uh, the over weeks and weeks, you get to know so much about the characters that you can anticipate what's funny about them just the way that you would uh, you know, in an episode of, of Frasier or, or uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm or, or whatever. So my meta answer would be make sure you have enough opportunities for the characters to do things and feel like sufficiently developed characters that you can anticipate what they're going to do and then find it uh, hilarious when they do it. So I played this beautiful uh, magic school game that a friend of mine ran um, several years ago. 
and my character lost her mother, who was very, very toxic. And at the funeral, <coughs> my um, one of the characters, just one of the NPCs, who is sort of like this very powerful plant mage who provided the bouquets for my mother, which basically turned out to be, I'm glad you're dead, you old hag, in flower language. Um, leaned over, tapped my character on the shoulder, and went, it's all right, dear. She died as she lived, surrounded by passive-aggressive flower arrangements. <laughs> and it just had our entire group in stitches for the next half hour because we'd been dealing with my character's mother, who was horrible, and, like, just dogging her freaking steps for most of the game. And then she died, and then she was just reduced to this thing that we could laugh at. So it was, all, it was also a moment of relief. That's really key. release, yeah. Yeah. I was going to summon and say, when you're talking about horror and comedy, we've ruined many of my uh, my my friend's GM's uh, horror games by laughing to release tension. Yep. Um, when perhaps he didn't always want us to. Um, but having moments of tension that can be uh, released by character stuff, by characters doing something totally in character and utterly obvious is sometimes the best way to give your players, especially if they feel awkward about being funny, a chance to be funny. Yep. So like I, I had a wonderful con game here yesterday where one of my players decided to play like the young brash warrior who was going to be like kind of inappropriately protective of the old wise wizard. <laughs> um, that's a great setup. First off, that's right out of a hilarious, like that's a farce. Right? The wizard doesn't need the protection, he's a wizard, but this young brash warrior thinks he knows what's going on. Um, but just giving both of them opportunities to play into this scenario they decided would be a funny thing to do was a great way to both get some laughs at the table and release some of the tension when we got into spooky situations and we didn't want it to get spookier. And to do that as the DM, I would just turn over and be like, what does Sam the warrior think of Basil the wizard getting that close to the dangerous thing? <laughs> And just set it up for them for Sam to do something that's going to be completely in character and completely just hitting that note that we all agreed on at the beginning of game was part of the character setup. So. Um, yep, I think we, we're at time. I'm just going to uh, uh, invite the uh, panelists if they have uh, like a blog or a Twitter account or a podcast uh, that you, you know you invite you to follow on. You know, just go ahead if you want to give a bit of self-promotion. Very quickly. Yay. Yeah. All right, I'm Rachel Kahn. You can find me at portablecity.net or at portablecity on Twitter and Instagram and such. Um, I have some pocket dungeons and some illustration and a lot of tweets awaiting you. I love the term pocket dungeon. Oh, and comics. It's so good. Uh, I'm Jax. I have a Patreon, which you can find on these cards. You can also find me at Rufflejax on Twitter. Uh, find me on Twitter at Robin D. Laws, or uh, use your podcast app to find Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff is great. You should all listen to it. Yes. You can find me on Twitter at Cindy M. Moore, and you can find me on Instagram as Cindy Moore Gamer, and I also have a Patreon uh, that I do uh, D&D Opportunity products and such. Yay. Okay. Running games and things like that. Awesome. Thank you to the awesome panelists.